0: This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. On this episode, Catherine Bowie joins Eric Jones, Gajna Devoriruk, and Matthew True to discuss her new research on the influential monk, Gruba and his place in defining modern timeline. So well, welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. I'm your host, Eric Jones, and with me in studio is our special guest, uh, Dr. Catherine Bowie. Thanks for joining us.
1: You had a pleasure to be here. <laughs> <laughs> we're,
0: we're excited to have you. We also have, uh, jo- flanked by uh, uh, a couple of friends and co hosts, uh, uh, Ganjana, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, you, I'm with- back. You're back, as as
2: I do, <laughs> as I do for Thai things.
0: Yes, and then uh, uh, soon to be Dr. Matthew True. Uh, uh, tell us a bit about yourself.
3: Hi, I uh, am one of uh, Catherine's former, I guess former at the time when this comes out, uh, <laughs> former PhD <laughs> students. So uh, I'm am ha- happy to be here with my former advisor uh, and and talk about Southeast Asia.
0: Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks all for joining us in studio here. Uh, we just had a uh heard a great lecture um from Dr. Bowie called Kruba uh, Srivichai the saint in the political storms of Thailand and maybe i want to start off with a, kind of an interesting teaser that you gave at the beginning which was uh uh you say that the most important person to study in the creation of modern nation state of Thailand might in fact be Srivichai uh can you confirm that and, and give us maybe a little bit about, uh, about, about why?
1: Certainly for understanding the incorporation of the northern region into the modern nation state of Thailand. Siwi would be a critical figure since he catalyzed uh, widespread uh, resistance to the central Thai administrative structure in the northern region.
0: Right. And some, and some of it you spoke about, we'll talk about today, is how, how he is remembered or misremembered or not remembered in, in Thai history. That's pretty fascinating and I think perhaps perhaps telling. Um,
2: and just in case people are unfamiliar with Thai geography, can you explain to us which part he's from yeah, that's right. and how does that, how, how did it matter? Why did it matter?
1: Uh, well, the northern region is a mountainous region with valleys. And so uh, that was part of the reason why the northern region maintained its independence for so long. In the old days, before the train tra- was post- train travel was possible, you'd have to travel by boat, which took uh, going upriver took months, and downriver uh, also very slow. And the other way of traveling was with uh, mule caravans and uh, by elephant. So, because it was a mountainous region and separate from the the delta region in central Thailand, uh, Bangkok had trouble expanding its administrative
0: control initially. For I guess the the modern visitors to Thailand might uh, un- uh, unknowingly be exposed uh, to um, Sri Bichai because of the, the the road that was built um, to Doi Thap, right?
1: Yep. Yeah, most, most tourists to Chiang Mai has their mandatory stop. One of the days they will yeah. go up the mountain to Wapathat Doi Suthep, which is on the mountain overlooking the valley that the city of Chiang Mai is located in. So it's about 11 kilometers of winding road with a great view up on the top if it's not foggy uh, or polluted. Uh, So, yeah, and so he had uh, catalyzed the labor and the materials that uh, led to the construction of that road back in 1935. Um, And there's now a shrine to him at the foot of that road that tourists typically— will stop at to buy stuff, uh, not necessarily having any clue yeah. about the importance of this monk for for Northern Thai. Bangkok Thais uh, have some sense that he's important, they should stop at the shrine, uh, probably good for lottery numbers. Uh, so that's...
0: A, yeah, my next question was going to be to like, like, how is he... Um, Maybe yourself, or, or kind of average Thai. What? What would? What would? You're well above average <laughs> Thai. But, but the. What would? How is? How is he remembered or or not remembered?
2: Um, one of the slides that um, John Catherine showed was this kind of collage of auspicious mm. uh, senior monk members from whom yeah. you could pray. You know get wishes granted, children, lottery numbers, sicknesses cured. Um, And I I knew that he was like one of the important ones. And my family's fairly uh, religious. So we kind of have, you know, figures around the house and, As a kid, you don't really know which old man in the yellow robe is which particularly, (laughs) but he's definitely one of the ones. Um, But, you know, our our students um, study intensive Thai at Chiang Mai, and that's an obligatory stop. Um, And the students of Chiang Mai University, as part of their freshman welcoming Mm -hmm. activity, they have to walk up this road by foot as kind of... Well, they say initiation. That I would consider that hazing <laughs> because once you get up <laughs> it's there. It's a long way. <laughs> once you get up there, there's still steps, like hundreds of steps to go up to the, the stupa. And, you know, so it's, it's part of, of an important cultural practice, ongoing um, cultural practice of northerners still.
1: Yeah, Central Thais, uh, a lot of them in the city of Bangkok have no clue. You know, they don't understand why I'm studying this monk at all. They just, you know, they think he's just another another monk, <laughs> another I, not older tra- gentleman in a yeah. <laughs> orange robe. <laughs> you know, why that, isn't his name something like money or gold or good fortune or something? And that, cha- and that
0: changes geographically when you get to when you get to northern Thailand.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I can tell a lot about uh, somebody by. How much of Sibiji's history they can talk to me about? So the some Northern index, I like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Pe- people that they'll know something that he built over a hundred temples. Um, I'll hear a lot about how yeah. he was very strict in the practice of Buddhism. This is from the Northern Thai. From but, the Northern but, Thai, yeah, yeah. Um, and a few some of the Central Thai and others uh, have, will have studied something, but most have no clue other than he's he's a Geiji Edan, a famous um, monk with uh, mystical, magical powers. But northerners, well, you know, they'll talk about um, that he had, that he was very strict in the practice of meditation, um, that he was vegetarian, he only ate one meal a day. Um, they'll, that, so all, all of that will be mentioned. Uh, some of the old-timers, younger generation, they're less into magical stuff, but the older generation will tell me about it wonderful stories about how he didn't get wet in the rain oh. and he floated in the air. And um, they'll tell stories about uh, how he could tell if if a villager was making an offering, but the vine of the plant actually had started in the neighbor's garden, not their own. And he would say, this is not yours to offer me. That's, that's wow. how amazing his magical knowledge was. But the part that I enjoy is uh, people that uh, – there was uh, someone who had been a novice with Siwi and had actually asked him if all of these stories were true uh, about him being able to float in the air and if he didn't get wet in the rain. And Siwi said, yeah, it's true. I I don't get wet in the rain because there's so many people holding umbrellas over me. (laughs) And I float in the air because there's so many people carrying my litter. So – so yeah, de- downplayed it, yeah. Yeah, so I thought,
2: oh, so he actually had a sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> so what does it mean then when, so going back to the Siwichai uh, index, if we will, now that it's a thing. So what does it mean when someone knew a lot or didn't know a lot as a northerner? Then I began to suspect that they were very much involved with the
1: redshirt movement, which of course would be true for a large number of mm. northerners. Yeah. Um, but it, it would be an index for just... Uh, how deeply involved they were. Um, Older generation, a lot of them knew that he had been arrested. Um, And they would focus on the first arrest about how he uh, had, uh, it was just a misunderstanding. He was a simple village monk. Uh, He went down to Bangkok um, and impressed the head of the monastic order in Bangkok with his deep knowledge and his virtuous meditation and um, so they would they would they would focus on the first arrest, where uh, indeed the Sangharat, the head of the monastic order in Bangkok, uh, was it was a very light, um, mild punishment, uh, basically no punishment at all. Actually, criticizing the northern uh, monastic order for being so harsh, and uh, paid for his train trip back to the north. So villagers will talk about the first arrest and say it was just a misunderstanding. He didn't know the new rules about uh, who can legally ordain people. In the old days, northern monks just ordained whomever the parents, you know, chose to uh, ask to ordain their children, their sons. And they didn't want to talk about the second arrest. A lot of them just collapsed the two.
0: So thoroughly depoliticized.
1: I think they didn't want to talk about the second one. And uh, very few people knew uh, about the arrests of the other monks. So they knew that Siwijai, Kuba Kaupi, uh, is a famous monk in the north that a lot of them knew about, who wore white uh, the rest of his life, and he died in the 1970s. And Kuba Wong, another another disciple of Siwijai. So a lot of people don't know that Kuba Wong was among the ones that was disrobed. They just know that Kuba Kaupi was. So that if I say, w- did you hear, were any monks disrobed, they'll mention Kuba Kaupi. Mm-hmm. Other than that, they're pretty much not aware. And when I say, were there, were there more, were there hundreds? And they they don't know. They, they A lot of them, so people that are following this will know, but it's not widely. My reading of that is that it was so painful for northerners to think that Kuba Siwichai was defeated. In, in 1936, when he was not allowed to return to the north until Kuba Kaupi agreed to disrobe and the 340-plus other monks were also disrobed. Uh, others fled uh, into the mountains or fled into Burma. I think that was so traumatic, and Siwi is their hero, so I think the idea that Siwi came back uh, defeated and depressed, uh, and in fact he died shortly thereafter, uh, I think that's, northerners don't want to think about that. And Central Ties don't want to talk about that either, because they want to suggest that everybody's happy to be Thai, and the idea that there was this strong resistance to central Thai administrative control, and even the extent of the differences in the northern Thai practice of Buddhism compared to the central Thai practice of Buddhism is also n- nothing that the central Thais would want to highlight. So both sides seem to converge on uh, basically erasing this part of Thai history.
0: So maybe for our, our listeners, give us a, give us a sense of the context, say, of the of the 19-teens and 20s, like what were, um, uh, you know, the, the that would lead to uh, the conditions of, of, of kind of unrest or, or the North in general, but maybe some of the more, you mentioned some of the rice export, um, teak logging. Uh, take us into that, that world a minute.
1: So the British in Burma were very interested in gaining access to the teak that was in the northern Thai mountain forests. So the problems start early um, and accelerate in the 19th century. And by the late uh, 19th century, there are all kinds of disputes over access, who has tea concessions. And various court cases that get appealed and appealed, they're going through the British Burmese system. Uh, they end up in also then being heard in the court in, in Siam. Uh, so the India Office, the Foreign Office um, uh, for the British are all involved. It's it's a mess, and the the one court then finds against the the ruling uh, king of Chiang Mai, and he has to pay compensation, of a, a small fortune, and the king of Siam has to cover the cost. So. He decides at that point that he's got to get, uh, he has to have more uh, involvement in what's going on in the North because they're making a mess. So 1870, they establish a international court to adjudicate all of these various disputes. So that's the beginning of how Bangkok starts to get involved in the North. And increasingly over time, um, they send Siamese, they're sending Siamese commissioners and by the early 20th century, they're seeking to gain more and more control over the monastic order. Uh, So they start uh, inviting northern monks down to Bangkok for an education, learning Central Thai, uh, learning Central Thai practices, and then going back to become leadership in the monastic order. So as those kinds of changes, and they're also increasingly, so by 1902, They have succeeded in putting the Northern Thai ruling lords on salary, so these lords have now lost their independent control over labor and everything else. They just have to agree to be paid uh, on salary. So that's when the Northern lords lost their control. But the population itself still did not consider themselves Siamese. They very very proud. They spoke a different language. They uh, had their own script. They had their own religious texts. Uh, their sons were going into the to the temple to get their education. So, um, as Bangkok starts to send their uh, administrators into the north, things start to change. They're starting to try to get control over the monastic order because that's where a lot of the education is taking place. And it just so happens that this is a time of famine and drought. And floods, and earthquakes, and hailstorms, uh, an outbreak of smallpox that the missionaries said they hadn't seen in decades. Um, 1918 is the time of the yeah. influenza. That was a global uh, epidemic. Uh, Rinderpest is is killing uh, water buffalo. Uh, it was it was a terrible, terrible time. The um, the British, for example, when they're floating their Teak logs down the irrigation canals uh, that villagers have built over the over the decades and centuries in the past. Uh, The teak logs would hit a a dam, and the dam would break. And now there was nobody, no clear line of authority to rebuild the dam. So the the paddy fields were without water, contributing further to the famine. And then by 1916, the railway has come up to Lampang in the north, and. now rice can be delivered to the railway station and shipped south for export. So that further exacerbated the famine. So things were really bad in that decade before Siwichai is investigated in Bangkok in and 1920. It, the and first it becomes
0: a, a, a tinderbox for, uh, right for a milita- millenarian movement that might see someone like Sriwijaya as uh, as the reincarnation of... Uh, the Maitreya, right? So this is uh, the all all of those conditions are sort of coming together to, to create this which is not the story that we get in 2019 about. <laughs>
1: no. The millenarian movement at that time, the belief in Maitreya was very strong. A lot of temples would have five Buddhas, the fifth being the Maitreya Buddha. And one of the charges that Siwijai faced when he was investigated in Bangkok for treason in 1920 was that he uh, was rumored to have the Sikhan chai sword that belonged to the god Indra, which makes rain, but it's also understood as the sword of social justice. So, uh,
3: <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I, I'm kind of interested in jumping the, the timeline just a little bit here. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that Khrubhasirivichai is uh, kind of closely related to the red shirt movement, um, and that people that, uh, you talked to that knew a lot about him, you suspected were involved with that movement. Um, you also mentioned in your talk, uh, that he had a relationship to, uh, Yingluck Shinawat and, her, uh, her campaign. So I'm, I'm wondering, can you bring us through that political relationship? And then as a second part, um, how have kind of the association with those movements and the political use of Srivichai uh, changed in, in terms of the, the recent political struggle, particularly before and now after the coup?
1: Yeah, that's actually a, a fascinating and very complicated dynamic. Uh, on the one hand, so Tuxin Shinawat you know himself is rumored to have made merit with Srivichai in a previous life. And the, uh, both Tuxin Shinawat and his sister Yinglak are Northerners, and um, so Yingluck Shinawat started her political campaign at the shrine, at Siwichai Shrine at the foot of Wat Doi Sitheb, and the candidates who were going to run in the in the Thai Party. Beg- before they registered their candidacy went to pay their respects to Chai. So Ying starts her campaign there. Uh, she also ends her campaign there. And most central ties Bangkokians when they see these photographs have no idea of the emotional political resonance of starting your campaign right. at that shrine. So um, during that period as the red shirt movement was uh, was growing, there was a magazine called The Voice of Tuxin that had uh, Siwi Jai on the cover. Another volume had a story about Siwi Jai. So that would have started to familiarize more red shirts with uh, Siwi Jai. But there's another part of, of the political dynamics of Siwi Jai, which is that there's a, a, another group of uh, monks today who are claiming to be reincarnations of Siwi Jai. And they actually know very little about Siwi Um they, don't, they think that they're even wearing like, uh, robes in the style of Siwi and they have completely the wrong color, et cetera, et cetera. But they're basically making an appeal to Bangkok, to uh, uh, wealthy Bangkokians who are looking for authentic uh, Buddhist monks. And many of these are... Uh, linked with uh, elites, and uh, these are uh, military elites. So there are military elites who are trying to get themselves linked into these particular monks who claim to be reincarnations of Siwijai. So Siwijai is actually fueling disparate kinds of political movements all at the same time.
2: So when when do you think, because there's clearly the man and the myth at this point in time, when do you think that shift happened? Was it immediately after he died in 1939, or did it take some time for him to attain this level of m- mythicism?
1: Well, I think there was already intense uh, mythification that went on in the, by 1920, that when when he was... Under temple arrest, which I'm going to suggest first happened about 1915, he was first detained under temple arrest at a local temple.
0: What were, they, what were the charges?
1: At, we don't really know the first charges. Um, they're they're kind of amorphous. Um, we don't really get them well documented until he's sent to Bangkok and then he faces eight charges, but okay. there are things like... Refusing to uh, record the names of all the monks and novices in his temple, refusing to decorate the temple for the the anniversary of the king's coronation, CBJ said uh, he didn't wasn't willing to decorate the temple, but he was willing to chant uh, on behalf of of the king. Um, So there were a, a series of various things like that. But when whenever he was so he was initially detained at the local district temple and the crowds grew, and the, the local officials were afraid. So they moved him to the provincial temple, and the crowds grew even bigger. And then they moved him to, that was in Lampoon, then they moved him to Chiang Mai, which is the headquarters of the entire northern region, and the crowds were growing even bigger. They had uh, two men stationed at the, at the gate, Recording everybody that they were allowing into the temple, they were basically trying to block anyone from having access. But there was just a huge crowd. I mean, literally hundreds every day coming to make merit um, with food offerings, wanting to see Sibichai. So the Chiang Mai officials were afraid of how to keep this situation in control, and decided then to send him down to Bangkok.
0: So the 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 question one that you posed is, does Chai then? have a conflict with the sangha or with the state and, or, or, or both? Cause I guess which sangha and which, um, you know, we know this, who the state is, but, uh, how does that, what are those dynamics? Cause these are religious charges ostensibly, but it's more than that.
1: Yeah. I think, I think it's because of, the, so I argue the 1920, uh, detention uh, and the charge of treason against him was because of the implementation of the Military Conscription Act, which went into uh, force in the northern region at that point. And uh, I think that was putting a lot of pressure on the monastic order, because in the old days, uh, monks and novices were exempt from military conscription. But under the new Bangkok law, only monks who knew the Dharma, uh, Tirutham, were exempt And in other words, they had to be able to read and write in Central Thai. And since Northern Thai monks couldn't read and write in Central Thai, they would be classified as not knowing the Dharma. So it was
0: was the Dharma in Central Thai.
1: The Dharma in Central Thai. Right. And so this new secular law was putting pressure on the monastic order that before somebody could ordain as a full-fledged, they could be a novice, but then before they could become a monk, they had to have... Uh, gone through the military draft, which was a violation of, of traditional northern practice. So as more and more of the northern monks were being sent down to Bangkok for an education, and as more Bangkok monks were being sent up north to assume positions in the new monastic administrative hierarchy, this this division emerged.
0: Yeah, and, and, and I mean, consri- conscription... Causes pushback and unrest in, in any context, and but if you conscript a uh, uh, sangha or monkhood, that uh, that's a particular, um, I mean, violation for, for them. So I can imagine that, that it's a double <laughs> it's a double edged sword.
1: And it w- I mean, the central Thai government did have a problem because nobody wanted to get drafted. So they—they're not, not compl- just them.
2: To be fair, There's <laughs> a rich history of people refusing to be conscripted for military service, right? Even today, I mean, today people
1: have there are more people wanting to go into the military because you know you can get your nursing training or, or education or whatever. So it's not the same. But but in the '70s, when I was first working in villages, there were draft parties, and pe- parents paying a lot of money to astrologers to make sure that their son's number didn't come
2: up right well they do that now still it's actually on youtube if you look up uh thai military draft it's a big event and it's become like a media spectacle (laughs) because it's a lottery system you get the black card or the red card and um yeah it's still an ongoing problem (laughs) yeah Yeah.
1: although i think there are more villagers today that that they're not as freaked out about getting drafted as they were back at the turn of the century, the previous century, where you could actually end up dying in some right. war in some godforsaken place. So it was, but so the central Thai government. There are various accounts of their officials going into a village and there's nobody that is left except the toothless old people, you know, because all the young ones have ordained overnight. <laughs>
0: Right. So. They, they suddenly felt the religious stirring so <laughs> <Yes>. suspiciously <laughs> close to the, yeah, the, the, so not only is there the, the, the draft issue is, is, is enormous, but um, you note that the uh, Northern song or the Lana song are, are uh, a kind of a check to, to state authority, which, which I hadn't heard, which is kind of fascinating. Maybe you see a bit about the, the, the interesting role that they play vis-a-vis kind of royal authority or state authority
1: yeah, there seem to be uh, dramatic differences in the way that the Sangha monastic order was structured in the central region and in the northern region. So in the central region, they seem to be far more dependent on uh, the palace for uh, support. Uh, the aristocracy often uh, were supporting specific temples. the The royal family uh, was supporting specific temples, whereas in in the the northern region, uh, villagers were supporting their local temples, so already there there was much more uh, interaction with the with the locals um, and much more dependent on on, on local local support. Uh, but it's also interesting that the northern sangha appeared to see itself as a check on the abuse of power by the state, so that. Um, I stumbled across one historical account from the 1830s. A British fellow who went up up to Chiang Mai and Lampoon, describing the uh, installation of a monk as the uh, Sangharat, the head the head of the the Northern Sangha, and when he's ordained, I mean when he's installed t- uh, as Sangharat he has to say the, the king says are you going to abide by the laws of my kingdom and and he says yes and then he turns to the king and says and if i ask you to spare the life of a prisoner will you do so and the king says yes and i have in encu- it's called bintabatuit and i have encountered in my interviewing uh cases and also uh found two to document it uh, in the um, travel accounts uh accounts of uh, times where uh, this actually happened. Uh, and the, the head of the Lampun Sangha um, villagers described to me how uh, the, the, the northern lord or king, um, when he was taking a convict to the execution grounds, he passed by this uh, abbot's temple and waited and sort of looked nervously over to see whether or not the abbot was about to come to the to the, the gate of the temple to spare the prisoner's life or not. So that was a a real thing.
2: Oh, the suspense! Well, did he?
1: In some cases, he did. Oh, but okay. I guess I
2: guess uh, in some cases no, he, no, he not just, for everyone. He decided that guilty as charged. Oh man, that's a, that would be like the the one chunk of the walk <laughs> that you would be you know hoping to atone the most if that's a, there's such a thing
1: i guess it would depend on the network of relatives
2: right right have you have you tamboon there or not right <laughs> uh,
3: it's interesting you, you're talking about this in in light of you know you, you mentioned that uh chai is is important for statecraft and resisting the state and i know that um, you and others like Taylor Esom have written about his works as a form of resistance against the state in that case, specifically his uh, his proliferation of temples that he built. Um, and it speaks to me of kind of that relationship that the Buddhist community has or I guess any religious community has. Um, in terms of resisting uh kind of authoritative authoritarian governments um, and we've seen that in history i guess most recently you know we could talk about burma or something like that um, i'm just curious about you know uh, he's framed this way um, and and we've mentioned his role in in the red shirt movement now um what of the intentionality of that do you think that he was intentionally trying to to resist that or was it more that people were crafting that image about him.
1: Yeah, that's impossible for me to know, and of course something I was really trying to pin down. Um, and I have to just back up on, on something. My portrayal of CVJ is in terms of the role that he played uh, being seen as a symbol of resistance by northerners. Of course. Um, but in fact the role of Buddhism and its linkage with the state is it's often uh, a, a means of social control that is deployed by the state. So the positioning of, of the monastic order in the state is complicated. Um, and I, you know, what, what was see si My by senses that Cwi si sided with poor people. Uh, villagers have quoted to me that uh, he would tell people that it's not the amount that you're giving. It's the intention. Um, so, didn't mean that you, you know you could only be rich, uh, but he had links with with the elites. So it, it's it's somewhat ambiguous. Um. So some people have argued that Siwi Jai was intentionally uh, that he knew full well what he was doing. The argument, uh, the evidence in support of that is that even once he knew the after 1920, and he knew what the law was. And even the evidence for 1920 shows that he was trying to reach out to the secular authorities for permission to do these ordinations. Um, but after that, he definitely, after 1920, he definitely knew what the laws were, and he ordained thousands of novices afterwards. So that was clearly a willful act. Whether or not, how political he was is an extremely sensitive topic. And uh, I, the very... First time I ever gave a talk about Siwichai, and I was trying to—I was just analyzing the the first arrest. Uh, hadn't gotten as far as the 1935 arrest yet. One of the ties in the audience was outraged by my presentation because, in his eyes, Siwichai had nothing to do with politics, and what was important was um, all of his magical powers and. You know his his strength in meditation and the fact that I was not talking about that that was going on. You know I wasn't denying any of that, uh, but I was focusing on the political context in which he was living his life um, was considered out, absolutely out, outrageous.
0: The, the the kind of close regional context I find really fascinating too because we, we know a lot about the historians have written a lot about the Sayasan Rebellion. Faithful listeners should go back and listen to Matriarch Twins' great uh, episode on the Return of the Gallon King. But um, the were was there was there consideration uh, cross border about the the kind of that this is a this is a problem that exists uh, with with monks with Theravada monks across the across mainland Southeast Asia. Were were, were authorities sharing notes? I mean, is that do we? Uh, what, what do we know about the way that, uh, were, were, were Thai officials aware of taking taking cues from uh, what was happening in, in Myanmar and vice versa?
1: So definitely in 1930s, the Thai officials would be very aware. They were very interested in the Shan states uh, yeah. for a variety of reasons. They had to be concerned about the role of the British. Um, there's a Lively opium trade that's going through there—that's very important for uh, the government budget. Um, and then on the Sayasan—I mean, they they definitely knew about all of these things. Those would have been uh, political concerns because the the new post nineteen thirty two government uh, was, uh, aligned, uh, was aligned. Kram was uh, aligned pro Germany, pro Japan, and would have seen. Uh, these other would be concerned about what the the northern elites and population sympathy were were they pro british uh or uh it, it did not seem to be that they were particularly pro japanese because the chinese population uh was very anti japanese
0: and that and that differs you mentioned from did i get that right from north to south the kind of Relationship that ties had with uh, the feelings they had about China and Japan at the time that 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 was reversed, or did, it, did I read that wrong?
1: I don't know if I'd say that it was north to south as opposed to the new uh, military government, uh-huh. the the new the post absolute monarchy, uh, the con- the newly installed constitutional government, uh, particularly people in Songkhram was. Pro-Japanese, pro-German, which was partly a, a an anti-colonial sentiment against right. the French and against the British. So one can understand how this this uh, sentiment developed. Um, but the drawn, Chinese they had drawn their borders incorrectly. After yes, all, yeah, yeah. yes, uh, But the Chinese, who who played a major role uh, in the in the economy, were. Uh, very supportive of Sun Yat-sen, um, and very anti-Japanese. So, and that they would have been in Bangkok as well. In fact, they, that is really the time where the the Communist Party of Thailand really takes off. Uh, is is during this period.
2: And many of the the Communist members. In Thailand, would go to this faraway place in the north, away from Bangkok, uh, to to have more support. So I, I don't think that helped <laughs> the situation up there. And you mentioned too during your talk that Krubasiwichai. Oh, and a, a short linguistic note. So Atan Catherine says Siwichai, that's the northern Thai, Okay. and then since I'm from southern part, in comparison, is Siwichai. In case, in case okay. people out there with the keen phonetic ears are wondering why there are two versions of the name. Man Leo. Man Leo. <laughs> <laughs> so, because I had two students in her talk, and they kept going, wait, what, what? Because I kept telling them about Siwi Chai, and then they're like starting Is to doubt tra- whether they know or, yeah. their consonants, you know? Oh. <laughs> so. So, anyway. Sorry, I
1: didn't mean to traumatize any oh, no, 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 students. Well,
2: be- beginning Thai is very traumatizing for some people. <laughs> it's
3: all right. The two people it's over here of our don't job. speak yeah, Thai. Yeah. Are just trying not to call him Kruba Siracha or something yeah, yeah. like See, that. Yeah. that He'd be nice. very wildly popular if he yeah. was
2: Kruba Siracha. Oh, man. I'm probably going to get it. a marketing bill. opportunity. <laughs> so, in your talk, you uh, mentioned that, that uh, maybe part of the problem was that his appeal and popularity kind of. Cut across all these sectors of northern Northerners, where the central government in Thai, in Bangkok couldn't really quite get a hold of it. They couldn't keep it under control. So, can you talk a little bit about his wide um, base of support and why that was so problematic for Bangkok?
1: Well, I think the basic problem was that Bangkok didn't the the post one thousand, nine hundred and thirty two government does not appear to have had solid links into the uh the north so they didn't they didn't have links with villagers or the elite for um relationship with villagers that seems to be solid so because they were providing all the labor for these 100 plus temples that he built and the bridge and the road and uh all the rest um the relationship with the elite also looks very, very solid because a lot of these building projects were done at the request of the local elites. And he was very careful. There's actually documents that survive from Payao, where your mother is, um, that that show, that are actually letters that Siwi Chai wrote that have survived. And they show Siwi Uh, On the one hand, being very careful, like, if we're going to rebuild this temple, um, you know, it's falling apart, the rain is coming through, et cetera, Um, if we're going to rebuild this temple, do the villagers have enough rice that they can afford to be helping with the construction? So that's actually something that he writes that indicates his awareness of just ordinary people. But he's also very careful to make sure that he has the permission of the local uh, ruling lords, so it's actually the ruling uh, lords and the head of the local monastic order that are requesting him to come and rebuild this. He also makes sure that he has the permission of the deities. He always does a ceremony to to check whether or not. And there would be places where he would refuse to build because uh, he would have done a, a a ceremony, you know, to to to, to check and then declare that, no, this, this, this area belongs to somebody else to restore. But he was working with Chao Keo, with, with all of the local, uh, um, the Tao in, in Lampoon. He, he was working with all of them. Uh, so he, he was very conscious of the, of the, uh, the need to, to be, particularly after 1920, very careful to make sure that he had all of the appropriate authorizations before he would embark on anything.
0: I feel like I want to, um, for for our listeners, give a sense of scale that you did well. Like, um, it's pretty prolific as a, as a, as a temple builder. Um, Suvijai, how 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 many are we talking? Uh, where where would you rank him in the sort of twentieth century, sort of uh, uh, monastic temple builders in, in in Thailand? It it seemed pretty impressive. The...
1: Yeah, I, do, I mean, it's almost like a competition now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> How, right. how, how many? Uh, That's how it always ends up. Uh, right. to a lot of them seem to be building in the Shan states, uh, the northern, the northern Thai monks. Um, he se- he seemed to have been building on an absolutely unprecedented scale. Northern Northern Thai monks uh, were the Central Thais criticized them because uh, Northern monks were builders. That when they were novices in the temple, uh, they were they were basically apprenticing. To learn all of the wood carving skills, all of the artistry, the mural paintings, all of that artwork. And basically criticized
0: them because they weren't studying instead of they were building, or is that yeah, what
1: they uh, the Tumayut interpretation was that monks should not work. Right. That, that the laity are to provide them and they're they're supposed to be meditating and studying. But Northern monks meditated, studied, and built. So his main uh, architects and craftspeople were monks and they're fun descriptions of the monks up on the rafters with <laughs> certain body parts that were visible oh no yeah oh no. villagers have a sense of humor that you know is shocking for modern audiences but I enjoy them oh I just got your joke now all right <laughs> <laughs> you have to be quick yeah <laughs> anyway where was, where were we <laughs> Um, suddenly, monks building. They were they were they were building. Yes, um, so he he was building a, a a whole range of things from these massive massive constructions to um, patat uh, jds uh, uh, up on, up on uh, very very remote mountaintops that even today you can only get to in the dry season. And when I asked why. Um, you know, part of part of the reason was uh, to build solidarity among the villagers. Were, and, were,
0: the, were those sites of, of very local um, power and um, authority perceived? And so that was the...
1: Yeah, there are some, you know, yeah. <laughs> highest mountain in that region. Um, so villagers were, you know, that it was a, a solidarity community building exercise uh, to do it. Um who knows? I mean, they—they're t- even today uh, quite a hike uh, to to get to. They're truly
2: engineering feats. Uh, just I mean, you get, getting the get, you dirt get carsick, up there. When <laughs> I mean, you get carsick going up, you get carsick going down, and you're staring all of these—you know—massive um, moving parts at some point. And how did they get it up there? Just in the days of elephants.
1: Well, uh, I didn't hear anybody describing elephants delivering stuff. I heard villager, really? yeah, wow. uh, villagers, yeah, uh, villagers, you know, <laughs> it, yeah. carrying the water up, wow, uh, the bricks, the dirt, um, if they were made out of cement. And, and you
0: mentioned building out of cement, which was which was uh, sort of an in- innovation.
1: Yes. Um, you know, the, the idea that a lot of people have is that he's some kind of a traditional northern Thai, you know, monk, and he was rejecting modern Bangkok practices. He was very um, innovative. So traditional northern Thai temples had been built out of wood. Um, and he, he, also, he did build out of wood, and he had uh, fantastic wood carvers, but he also built out of reinforced concrete. Which is what allowed him to build some of the massive uh, constructions that he did, um, and it's possible. So, 1920s is uh, uh, reinforced concrete would just be coming into Bangkok in in you know the decade or so previous. So, it's possible that while he was being detained in, in Bangkok uh, back in 1920, he was using that time, putting it to good effect, seeing what. What could be done with reinforced concrete, and uh, relied on uh, Chinese uh, from from the central region. Uh, he hired them to come up and and do the make the reinforced concrete parts of his temples.
3: I'm interested in that. Um, so, y- see, so you had to know eventually. I was going to ask you about tourism, and I will get to that in just ah. a second. <laughs> but um, one of the things I was thinking, you, you showed us these, you showed us these. Uh, images of, of his temples and these massive Buddhas and you know very impressive kind of monumental approach to to building um, Buddhist figurines and Buddhist spaces and as we know um, you know there is a, a kind of um, that the relationship between um, religious pilgrimage and tourism, you get Buddhist tourism across Asia, where, you know, different communities are interacting with different powerful figures, either for, you know, monumental building reasons or the reputation of, of monks. But at the same time, you did mention that uh, not everyone knows who, who this person is, if they're not from a very specific context. Have you ever encountered, um, you know, religious uh, tourists, uh, um, Buddhist tourists from, from elsewhere coming to visit? I mean, you're pretty close to Myanmar. Have you encountered that? Uh, I, w- I wasn't—I wasn't doing what I had encouraged
1: you to do, which is namely interview all the <laughs> tourists that were there. I was actually more interested in the, the abbot of the temple and how much uh, they might actually know about si Um But yeah, the, the motivation for building these incredible structures is to uh, attract tourism, um, and a new one is being built in 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 Chiang Mai so it's an enormous enormous structure of sviti and underneath are i can't remember if it's three three floors of meditation cells so the idea is to encourage lay meditation which it seems ironically if the account of his lay disciple, I mean, his um, uh, former, uh, his disciple, Kuba Kaupi, who was forcibly disrobed more white the rest of his life. If Kuba Kaupi's account can be accepted as a reflection of Kuba Siwitae's opinions, he would have been opposed to lay meditation. Hmm. That if you're going hmm. to meditate, you need to do it properly, seriously, renounce your attachments. It's not something you can do over the weekend. And then go back and say, where is my water buffalo? Um, we know as you do (laughs) when you go home as you as you might if you were a villager back in the day yeah so but yeah so developing uh centers for to uh for lay meditation to attract people from nationally and internationally
3: and i wonder if that that seems to speak to the kind of educational power of tourism and visitation as well um in that you know you mentioned that tourists uh visiting these temples often see uh images of of uh and they don't necessarily know much about him and there's certainly this religious tourism potential but i wonder given the context of uh the political narrative that surrounds him if there isn't a little bit of uh you know asserting a, a regionalism through that as well to 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 visitors um and and not just you know, uh, domestic tourists and, and a, Asian tourists in general, or, or even Buddhist tourists, but but even, you know, foreigners like myself or yourself that, that show up. Um, do, do you think it plays that role of, of still saying, hey, you know, we're, we're playing nice with Thailand, but at the same time, we're still very separate?
1: I don't know to the extent to which I want to go that we're still very separate. But definitely, it's a strong word, perhaps
3: not the. But, the best but word. depends who you ask. Yeah. it's
1: definitely unique pride. Yeah. yeah, there's a pride that you know we we have a very powerful monk, but not the political part. N- not so it's it's a, a cultural national. I mean, a regional pride, but not with the arrests and the disrobing part. We don't want to talk about that part just he was a great monk he had magical powers a very strict meditator uh followed the the vinay uh Vinaya discipline monastic discipline rules very closely uh vegetarian um uh yeah one meal a day those that aspect of him so taking pride in that part and not talking about the other part
0: so Catherine, is this uh tell us is this part of uh, it's just part of a book project what when when can we when can we read more in uh, in print about this
1: ah, it <laughs> it is a book project that i've been working on and then uh, you know e- each time i have an opportunity to go back to thailand i think okay this is it i'm this is the last time i'm doing any more interviews you know all the people right. in their 90s <laughs> that had ordained as novices with sibi thai are gone now it's like time to stop um, so I'm yeah, and then uh, nephews and nieces pop up, and right. there's a, well, this summer I, I thought I okay, this is it. You know, I'm just going to check on the uh, the role of the Chinese, and I then that turned out to be fascinating. Meeting the offspring, the descendants of some of the key Chinese that played a role in C. Si B. Jai's life. Um, uh, yeah, so there's always there, it leads on and on and on. But I, I, I am drawing the line, and I hope that I get a draft done within a year. It's on record
2: now. It's That's
1: right. We'll check back.
3: To, to be fair, you, you have published on him before. I I, I, I I crammed this morning for this interview by reading your article on the usage of the swords. So there's, there's interesting yeah. stuff out there for sure.
1: Yeah, there, there's a couple things in Journal of Asian Studies and Comparative Studies in Society and History on the millenarian part. So focusing on yeah. the first arrest.
0: Well, this sounds really, really fascinating, and uh, we're uh, we're always excited more Southeast Asian history. So, thanks again for uh, joining us on Crossroads, and uh, come back again.
1: Thanks for giving me an opportunity to talk about my current favorite topic.
0: That's yeah,
3: great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>